Radio Days Africa podcast is brought to you by the Vids Radio Academy. Radio Days Africa 2020 is about to go live. Hello and welcome to Radio Days Africa 2020. Today is day nine. My name is Kema Wisa and I am proudly moderating this all-female panel today. I would just like to let you know that Radio Days Africa 2020 is proudly presented by Vitz Radio Academy and is made possible through the generous support of the Sub-Saharan Africa Media Programme of the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. We would not be able to have done this without our generous sponsors. So thank you very much to Iono FM for podcasting and streaming, uh, the Abundant Media Group for sharing the conference to community radio stations on their vivid channel. Thank you so much to RCS Sound Software and Crossfade Studios. We really do appreciate your support. If you are joining us today, you've probably uh, know the drill already, but I'm going to remind you that you can register for other sessions for free for the other 11 days so please do so at radio days africa um, at the website you can do that for free invite your friends and if they love radio or are just interested in some good conversation they should join us now today is going to be a goodie because we are talking are we fact uh, and i've got an incredible panel that i quickly want to introduce to you uh, and what's great is that they're all over uh, the continent so we have nelly Kalu. Uh, Nelly is a fellow with the Dubawa PTCIJ Fact-Checking Fellowship. She's representing Newswire NGR from Nigeria. We've got Tandy Smith, Head of Programs at Media Monitoring Africa, and Kate Wilkinson, Deputy Chief Editor at Africa Check. Now, I know we are all bombarded with news on the daily. But what is concerning is that we can't always trust the news that we are hearing. We can't always trust the news that we are seeing on our screen. So today we're gonna try and navigate how we go through verifying the news sources and the news that we are getting and how do we make sure that we are actually consuming the good stuff. So what I'd like to start with actually is just a brief introduction from each one of you. So I'll start with you Nelly, then Kate, then Tandy. If you could just introduce yourselves and the organization that you represent, just so we get a, an understanding of uh, the organizations that you, you, you representing. Okay, hi Claire. Um, can you hear me clearly? Clearly, yes, thank you. Okay, so I'm Nelly. I represent uh, Newswire NGR. It's um, a portal, an online news journal, and it's also a news distributor that helps to make sure that we tell the underreported stories, the stories that people tend to ignore. I'm also a broadcast journalist, and currently I am with the Dubawa. Premium time center with fellowship, the fact checking fellowship. And the reason these fellowships exist is for because broadcast journalists like me and really journalists in other fields like print and others are yet quite unfamiliar with quickly fact checking ourselves before we go live on air, especially when you have a newsroom that's so small. So, yeah, that's why I'm here. I'm currently a fellow with Dubawa and I'm also here to have this conversation with you, which I'm really excited to have. Okay, Kate. Hi, Claire. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Kate Wilkinson. I'm the Deputy Chief Editor at Africa Check, which is a fact-checking organization that is based in four African countries. Our head office is in Johannesburg, South Africa, and our other offices sit in Nigeria, Kenya, and we have a French-language website that is run out of Senegal. Our day-to-day -day work is really trying to verify if important statements that are made in the public domain are true or false, and if people who are claiming certain things have evidence to back it up. And that's because we believe that good, accurate, reliable data is really something which strengthens democracies, helps advance accurate debate, and really should be the basis of policy decisions, personal decisions, um, and ultimately, how we make our way forward in the world, whether we're a private citizen, a government, a civil society organization or a business. 
So I'm hoping to discuss these important issues and also learn from the other panelists and hopefully people who are watching um, about what they're doing and answer any questions. Fantastic. I think we just had a technical issue with Tandy. She'll probably just rejoin us. I just want to have an idea of what your teams look like. Um, so how big are your teams and, you know, who are they made up from? So Kate, could you start? Yeah, so Africa Check was started in 2012. And when I joined the organization in 2013, it was a team of about two working from Johannesburg. Um, we then moved into the VITS journalism department, which we've called home since then. Um, but the organization has grown um, rapidly, but, but strongly over the years. We now have around 30 people working across the continent that make, is made up of both full-time staff as well as freelancers. And we aren't just fact-checkers. So, of course, we have our editorial team. We have the researchers who do the sort of nuts and bolts work of looking at statements, fact-checking them, writing reports. But we also view the work that we do at a much sort of wider perspective. And that is um, not only do we fact-check claims, we also want to make sure that people in Africa have the skills and the resources to do their own fact-checking. Uh, so we have a team called Trifax who offers training. Uh, to newsrooms, to organizations, as well as research um, capability to help um, encourage fact-checking on the continent. And then also a team working on impact to try and take the work that we do um, and realize greater impact, help encourage governments to use accurate data, help hold people accountable for what they say when it's wrong. So it's quite a varied team um, working across the continent. And Nelly, who, who works in your team? So could you give us how many people are in your team and, you know, what their qualifications or what their roles are in the team? You're on, you're on mute still. Yeah. I know. Okay, so yeah, absolutely. Um, let me speak for the fellowship itself particularly, and I'll tell you why. I know in the fellowship we're about, um, about 22, 23 fellows, and there was a deliberate selection of who these fellows are and from the industries that we represent. Uh, radio days, of course, broadcast industry. So that's you know where some of us fit in. Some are from online and some are researchers. And they were quite deliberate to make sure that there were women in the mix as well. Because you find that sometimes in random selection without um, trying to truly include you know, who is in, you know, who, who participates in these fellowships, you just might find that there's a tilt towards, you know, the gender and the skill that has been applied. So the for the newsroom and for the actual journalism that I do, there isn't really a fact-checking desk or a fact-checking, um, you know, office. And the reason for this is because most newsrooms, at least in Nigeria, can't afford to isolate fact-checking and yet make it a part of you know, everyday media. Radio imagines that because it's so immediate, it's not yet time to, you can almost fact check and then go on the air, almost like you have to compartmentalize when fact checking is done. So there isn't really a, a, um, a fixed unit of people who do fact checking. And that's also the reason for fellowships like this, so that people like me can go back to the institutions we represent to the media houses we work for and establish fact checking desks. So if you ask me this next year, Claire, I'll probably have a very fixed number for you by then. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I just want to remind everyone that is participating who have joined us today, if you'd like to ask any of our panelists a question, just go down to the question uh, box below and I'll get through to your question. Hopefully we'll get to, uh, to them before the end of the session. There's just so much to go through. I think one of the biggest concerns that we have is that um, we've been flooded with the misinformation. Uh, People are doubting the credibility of the news that they are watching and hearing. Um, so what are the greatest challenges, would you say, to credible news? Why are we, you know, what are the challenges when, when it comes to disseminating and getting the right news to the people uh, that need it so badly? Um, Kate? Yeah, so I think the first point you started on really gets to the root of not just the current crisis with the, the pandemic, but really a, a much bigger and uh, an issue with a much longer history. And that is 
the, the problem with the both the quality and the quantity of the information that we are exposed to on a daily basis. And the World Health Organization coined a phrase a couple of months ago when the pandemic was just getting going. And they said that, you know, not only are we facing a pandemic, we're facing an infodemic. And that's because there is an overabundance, a flood, like you say, of information. And not all that information is wrong. Some of it is right. Some of it is wrong. Some of it is misleading. Some of it is out of context. And there are lots of risks because of that. Uh, the first is that we can believe things that aren't true. And we can make decisions based on information that could result in negative outcomes that could affect our health, uh, that could affect a whole range of things. But actually, one of the most worrying consequences is that we tend to not believe anything. We, we don't know what is true. Um, we don't know who to trust. So we are left in a state where we're confused. We don't trust people who might be able to give us good information. Um, we, we're left not knowing where to turn to and what information to rely on. And I think there is where the need for the, the media and fact-checking organizations to play a role is so evident. Um, um, we have seen a huge demand, probably the largest in Africa Czech's history, for accurate information. And I think that that is both um, an opportunity for media organizations, for fact-checking organizations, because we are never more needed, have never been more needed than we are now. But it's also a challenge because the stakes are so high. Um, it can be hard to know what is true. Um, there's huge responsibilities to report accurately and responsibly. And really the, the, the stakes are at an all-time high for us to do our best jobs at a very pressing time. Um, so we have our jobs cut out for us. I mean, Nelly, I, I remember growing up and um, my mother watching the news at seven o'clock on TV, buying the newspaper, believing everything she read and everything she saw. Um, but the world is a different place now because of social media. Do you think social media is also one of the greatest challenges in the spread of just misinformation and fake news? You know, what role has social media played when we're talking about news that can be verified or, new, or things that are true? Let's, let's talk about your mom and her consumption of news back then. She knew that if she, had to, if she had to consume fake news, there was a place to go get it. I mean, back then they'll call it, some people call it the yellow pages. You know, my father would say soft sell, you know. So you already knew that there was a classification for news that you shouldn't take seriously. But with social media and with tech, fake news can be made to look serious. And there's so many, um, there's a lot of, discrediting of news from voices you, you consider important, like politician voices, social voices that are very influential. So there's a lot of people angry at the way news is done, angry at the way it depicts them that they discredit the news. So if I want to believe some fringe idea, I have to find something that confirms my bias. And if the news isn't doing that, then that's not for me. But I think the challenge the news is having also is to be able to communicate the fact check in the first place. Because we've lost trust, we have to regain trust. One of the ways to do that is to be transparent. One of the ways to be transparent is to check the facts and show how you checked the facts and you know, present your work to the people and hope they believe you. But how do you do that? It's easier to go on social media and read up on an article that just tells me what I want to say in as quickly as I should say it or hear it and I'm gone. So how much do people sit down as our parents used to do and flip through news pages or dedicate an hour to news to get the facts? Nobody does that anymore. So I think one of the challenges, especially in the broadcast industry is to be able to fact check and communicate and interpret the fact check in a way that people aren't bothered by it. So they can give you almost the same attention span that they give fake news. So you can find a space, you know, in their heads because there is just so much of the information coming at once. And I worry that it's not really the duty of the consumer to, to decide which news should take priority in their minds. I think we have to find ourselves in that space as well and, you know, fight to gain their trust, even when we have all the facts. 
And Kate, has social media become the bane of your existence? <laughs> I know so many people tweet Africa, check, check this. Somebody said this, the politician said it. Um, you know, what is your understanding or, or you know, what is your attitude towards social media and, and just the spreading of misinformation? Yeah, so obviously, as with most things, there are two sides to the coin. Social media offers organizations like Africa Check and other media organizations really the reach and the ability to to get their content out there to reach audiences although it's important not to fall into the trap of thinking that your only audiences are on social media but what we know is that false information propaganda mistakes by journalists all the challenges that are summed up in this word fake news which we don't like to use because it's quite a blunt instrument is not a new problem. For centuries, politicians have been fibbing. Um, they've been twisting the facts. Um, but for many years, it was quite hard to distribute your propaganda or uh, even an honest mistake. It would be very hard to reach hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people um, within a day, let alone a week. Um, and now we know that something that is tweeted at 2 a.m. in New York um, can reach millions of people, irrespective of the time zones, within an hour. And that is the new playing field when it comes to having to fight misinformation. We, we know that we have a big job and we have a huge problem to tackle. And there, only, there has only been so much that organizations like Africa Check and like other fact checkers around the world have been able to do about it. And that is our regular work, which is identify statements that are important to fact check, do the work, publish the work, speak about the work. Um, but we're not, we're not fighting on a level playing field, especially when um, the way that social media platforms are designed, uh, the way that algorithms propel certain information um, to audiences, um, there's a very cliched but true saying that, you know, a lie will make its way around the world while the truth is still putting on its boots. And that is something that we struggle with. But we are trying to, to, to gain ground on the lies. And one way that we do that is by working with the social media platforms. So, for example, with October 2018, and what that does is, um, because we're a member of the International Fact-Checking Network, we've been allowed to join the program, and we are able to look on, look at a, a list of Facebook posts that have been flagged by the platform as potentially false. Um, we're at liberty to choose what we fact-check, and once we fact-check those posts, we publish an article and we rate them. Though if it is incorrect, um, the reach and the spread of those posts is reduced. And in that way, the platform is able to work with fact checkers to reduce the spread and hopefully the impact of false information. And I think those are the sort of collaborations, partnerships that we need to be looking at at a wider scale to see how we can try and, you know, up the resources that we have to fight misinformation and hopefully um, reduce its impact on, you know, what is really our digital streets. It's where we live our lives. So true. Uh, Tandy has joined us. Tandy Smith, Head of Programs at Media uh, Monitoring Africa. Thank you so much for joining us. I know you've got some technical problems. Um, I, I did ask uh, the other ladies to introduce themselves and their organizations, uh, just so we know who you're representing. So could you do that uh, for us, Tandy? Can you hear me, Tandy? Am I clear? Oh, Tandy's not hearing me. I think we're going to try and just send a message to her. Um, so I, I, what you, what you said at the beginning, Kate. Sure. Uh, thanks, is... and apologies for the, the network issues. Oh. I can hear you. Are you able to hear me? Yes, I am now. I can hear you now. Go ahead. There, my back. Yes, yeah. Okay, perfect. Sorry about that. Um, we went to stage two load shedding a few minutes ago. Um, and although my area is not affected, I think the networks are, are just um, yeah, taking a lot of strain. So apologies about that. 
Um, I'm trying a, a plan B. But um, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm uh, Tandy Smith from Media Monitoring Africa. We are an NGO based in Johannesburg. Um, and essentially, we look at human rights issues Um, well, let me first start. We, we analyze monitor and analyze mainstream news media uh, for issues of rights-based approach. Um, over the last few years, that work or that approach has moved into the digital space, um, and, and it's opened up a, a, a huge range of um, additional challenges that we, we end up needing to address through that sort of basic standard approach of Ooh, Tandy's audio. I'm going to continue. I think uh, we're breaking up there, but Tandy, I'll see if we can uh, reconnect her. Um, I think one of the things we, we kind of all don't understand just um, as um, consumers of the um, moved into the digital rights information. I'm going to see if we can. Um, one of the things that we don't understand, we, Kate alluded to it earlier about the fact that we just call it fake news, but we, re we don't realize that there are lots of different layers and lots of different types of misinformation and disinformation that come through. Um, you know, so I, could you just plot that out for us? Uh, I'll start with you, Nelly. Um, could you just help plot out what falls under the umbrella of fake news. When we're talking about misinformation, is some of it true or is it orchestrated? Is somebody benefiting from it? Is it propaganda? Could you explain the different levels and the different layers? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm glad you asked that. We were just talking about that the other day. And the question was, is some of it true? And if some of it is true, is it ultimately false, you know, in the end? But I think some of the time, what we have is maybe an incomplete uh, information, an incomplete data that has been translated in different ways. Because basically, fact-checking starts with giving, getting the figures of so-called claims and information that you have. And then you have to debunk these fake stories or fake news. I'm trying my best to start saying fake stories. And, you know, you have to do that work. But is some of it true? Sometimes the premise might be correct or the data that begins it might be, the numbers might be right. It's just how you interpret it. In Nigeria, for instance, what we have is a combination of all three you mentioned. We have the ones that are ultimately wrong and false, but it's coming from a source that seems reliable. So it is, it, or it comes with an inherent belief because this person that's communicating this, and that's one trend, is giving you a false information that confirms either your bias or just confirms your trust in them. Then you have information that is almost true, but has now been falsified to you know, fit an agenda. You know, there you have that also. And then that kind of information is harder when it's, uh, when it's uh, purely misinformation. It's spread amongst friends and loved ones and close units like, say, WhatsApp. And then people are receiving this partial, you know, idea of a fact as, you know, as a truth. And that's one of the things the pandemic really exposed, because as scientists kept going from different you know, layers and versions of understanding the COVID-19 virus, there, were, there was a lot of incomplete information released to the public. You know, and some of them, we as news people, were part of the people who shared this message. You know, today young people can't get it, tomorrow young people can. You know, so there was just a lot, as science was walking its way through, which before today and before social media and before where we live in, where information is just coming to you within an hour, you know, as she said. And in, in times like that, before that, you could settle down, give scientists some time to come up with something a little bit conclusive. But now we want it immediately and at the point. So the different trends depend on how we receive it. So in the case of the pandemic, for instance, we kept receiving partial news that was constantly changing. So trust in the source of the news became a problem. Trust in science itself became a bit of a problem. And these are the things we had to deal with. So it wasn't false, it just wasn't complete. And then in you know, the other hand, it's absolutely false. And then it's sent to you by someone you trust. And of course, the incredibly malicious versions that are just sent, spread around for an agenda. So we're walking through 
different types of these things, different trends of how facts get to us and why they get to us, that we have to sort through, not just as fact checkers, but you know, in, in my unique case, also as a broadcast journalist, where I have to sort through the intent of the message, I have to sort through the context, and who meant it? Where was it originated from? You know, what's the reason? How complete or incomplete is this data that I have in my hands? And how do I communicate to my audience? This is what I know, but you should pay a little mind to it. You know, so it's, it's the, these are the, the for me, and, and I think um, this, is, this is the place that begs the question, if newsrooms should have statisticians or researchers or data analysts right there to be able to work you know, right at a second, a heartbeat to get to the fact checking. Because should we do that? Because I cannot report the news and still find you the details and the nuances and the data all at the same time. Or can we, I don't know, Claire, you try. What do you think? Can we do all of that at the same time? I mean, the, 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 the toughest thing, especially when you're talking about radio, is that people are rushing to be the first and not necessarily to be correct when they're reporting on news or when news is coming in. And with what I've seen with the pandemic is, is that there are daily briefings. Um, there are new information is released on the hour um, and we're trying to make sure that we're getting the news out there as quickly as possible. But unfortunately, that means that we are dropping the ball when it comes to facts and verifying the information that we, we are having. Uh, is that what you find, Kate, is that, that the rush to be first is, is, is the challenge, is that people or broadcasters need to stop rushing to be first because we want to be the first to tweet it, the first to say it, the, the, the breaking news. Um, so... Is that the issue that we're dealing with, with broadcasters, that they, they're rushing to, to broadcast it without taking con into consideration that it needed to go through a process of fact-checking? You're on mute. So I think it's one of the issues. Um, there, are two, there are two points I want to talk about. The first is how journalists and the media in general are not very good and struggle to report on situations where we don't actually know very much. And the second point I want to get to is the challenges of, of mediums like radio and television. But to go back to the first point, the public generally, what we find, likes to know if something is A or B, if it is true or false, if someone's been elected or has been dismissed. But when we find ourselves in a situation like this COVID-19 pandemic, as we have seen over the last three to four months, what we know is constantly evolving. Um, and what journalists often want to report is the latest study, the latest numbers, the latest announcement. And in that desire to tell people what is, we often don't communicate how certain we are about that. And what happens is we'll have a study or a report published that says for is maybe more or less susceptible to COVID, or that by smoking or not smoking or drinking or not drinking, you are more likely or less likely to become infected or maybe to die from the disease. And often a statement or a broad stroke from a study becomes news. And we don't communicate to readers how certain we are of that, how certain scientists are of that, what the bigger picture is, how studies are developing. And when we miss out that step, when that study is debunked, when the science moves on, which is normal and which is what we want, readers often can then lose trust in the media and in journalists. Um, and in the, the position that, they occupy for reporting this news. And I think that if we were to be more honest with readers, with listeners, with viewers, and say, this is the study that has been released and this is what it says, but it's developing, we're not sure. Scientists say it could change. We need, it still needs to be peer reviewed. You're not setting yourself up um, to be undermined where the thing that you reported as fact, which wasn't actually fact, turns out not to be true. So I think in that way, a better understanding of science. And, and I would ideally, I'd love it, as Nelly suggested, if, you know, um, 
media houses could have statisticians and, and scientists in, at a desk just ready. Um, but at Africa Check, we don't even have that because resources is lim are limited. And often we have to rely on calling people and having a scientist, a researcher, an academic who you can ring up can really help you understand what you're reporting on and in turn help the public understand what you know and what you don't know. Um, to the second point, fact-checking takes time. And often, although it should fit into an editorial process, it's one of the things that is skipped or has to be left um, or shelved in order to publish. Quickly, to get it out there, you want to be first. Um, I think that when it comes to radio and television, um, we often view it as an all or nothing thing. If you have a government spokesperson on air um, and she is talking to you about something and she's making claims um, and say she makes a statement about service delivery or how many people have passed away from COVID-19, you know, the often refrain is, well, I can't fact check that on air. There's no time. I didn't know she was going to say it. And that's absolutely true. But there are certain little questions that you can employ as a journalist in that situation to convey to your reader how certain they should be of what they're hearing. Um, and again, that can be if someone says, oh, access to electricity has increased from 30% to 80%, you can say, where's that statistic from? And if the, if the government spokesperson goes, uh, mm, um, mm, uh, oh, it's a report, as opposed to, oh, it's from the General Household Survey, the latest edition, you can get it from StatsSA. That tells your listener all they need to know about whether that information is credible or not. Another question of um, where are the numbers from? How was that calculated? Is, was there a study? Um, can you direct us to the research organization that has come up with this? That is fact-checking. It might not give you the answer, but it gives you and it gives your audience an idea of whether they can trust that person and that information. And it's something that is so easy to do. And unfortunately, we don't see or hear enough of it. So um, right. I mean, when you, yeah, Nelly? Am I muted? Let me no, you're not. I can hear you. Yeah, I, was, I wanted to just add to what she said, especially in reference to radio broadcasting, you know, and TV. You, it, this might be, you know, the best, it's, way to go about it on television where it's the camera is right in you if it's live especially and you do not have that five seconds to check back and the same with radio but i think radio has a little bit of flexibility to do a little more than just that right i mean there and also the second thing before i really buttress on that is training if a broadcaster whose original idea of telling the news and telling and analyzing the story is to immediately break what's happening or tell you what the interview says without being combative. They need to be, we need to be disabused or let me just say, we need to relearn how we do our jobs because when you bring fact checking into the mix, fact checking does not demand immediacy. It does not, it demands a little bit of a push and shove, you know, of the data. And these are, these are not skills that broadcasters really think they need to bring immediately to the scene. For instance, going back to what I said about radio, a radio host has the chance, especially in talk radio, let's start with that, the chance to say, what is that? I'm going to immediately check it if that's okay, you know, and have the support to do this because there's a longer time Radio has more of an interpretative journalism style, which means everything that I hear, I have to interpret to my listener, who could be anywhere. You could be in remote areas where you haven't as yet accessed Facebook. You could also be you know, in your offices where you've checked the latest Twitter timeline. But it's my job to tell you that A and B you know, gives you A, B, just might give you something else like B, A or whatever else is there. So in that space of interpretation, I think journalists need to be trained to understand that we're in an age where there is more demanding of us and there's a little bit of science attached to journalism today. So it's our responsibility is what I'm trying to say to use the medium you can for the flexibility to get the exact news and be trained to know how quickly to do that. Staying with you, Nelly, I mean, I know Kate brought in the idea of politicians we all secretly rolled our eyes. Um, but I mean, when we talk about the people that own the media platforms, so oh. when you're talking about the fact um, that 
politicians are owning some media platforms. Could you just explain the intricacy and the challenges when it comes to that in Nigeria uh, and, it, and, and, and how it relates to fact-checking and verifying what they're saying? Will they correct themselves if, you know, if it favors them or not? Could you, could you just share what the situation in Nigeria is when it comes to politicians and them being media owners? Yeah, I, I can try. Otherwise, it will take the entire hour. But yes, I can try. So basically, you know, when media costs a lot of money and the money it costs to run media, even in its most skeletal form, you can find amongst politicians. They have the money and they've gone years after years without being questioned how they have the money they have. You know, and so in order to, uh, in, in some way, legitimize their input and in order to take control of the narrative of the news, many of them buy licenses, own them, and they buy it from their own. You see, the National Broadcast Corporation is the National Broadcast Corporation. So they buy from themselves, basically, you know, the license. It's harder for an independent person like me with dreams, even if I had money to just access a license as easily as it would be with someone with influence you know so they buy these um, they have the license set up they have the money to set up as quickly as possible and they have the money to pay and journalists in nigeria are not exactly the highest paid the best paid people and they're not particularly you know um not all jobs grants, not all journalism jobs grant them what they need, the safety and security that they need. Take a look at COVID-19 and covering the news. Many of them are out there without PPEs and without any form of security in covering these news. And you have journalists in Nigeria falling ill to COVID because of these things. If you have a an owner with money, they can decide, you know what, I'm going to get PPEs for my people. So you most likely work there. So they have access to owning the media houses. Now, how do you fact check your boss, the person who pays you a salary, you know, when they say something totally bizarre? How do you go about that? You could dare to do it, but in hindsight, you could follow up the story after someone else has covered it. These are the limitations fact checking has. I mean, even if you said it wasn't, Africans actually join in Nigeria, we make the same argument when you hear that an independent media is being sponsored by an NGO or from a moneymaker that is non-Nigerian or non-African. But, and then you say, how can you critically check these people when they take, you know, when they beat the African space or the Nigerian space? The same argument goes for a politician who owns a media role. How can I check the person who feeds me? You know, so it's it's that fine line. And no matter how much you train us, the job will be to, I think the, the exchange becomes the solution. So I fact check the other politician who isn't my boss and then they fact check my boss because that might be the only way to find a balance in this. But that's unfortunately where we are. Um, I mean, Kate, when you hear that, is is... Is that the thinking like, is African news then more susceptible to misinformation um, because of these um, tricky um, relationships that uh, Nelly is talking about? Is the news that Africans are just consuming on the continent um, more rife with misinformation than maybe the rest of the world? I, I wish I could tell you, I wish I knew. Um, as, as a fact checker, I'm. I'm very wary of, of trying to, to guess or speculate in that regard, because unfortunately, one of the things we're lacking when it comes to this topic is that sort of information. Um, but I do think that we do face some challenges which aren't always unique, but are sometimes more challenging um, than some of our counterparts around the world. And for a lot of our colleagues, whether at Africa Check or at the, the many other fact-checking um, organizations on the continent, um, simple access to information, um, whether it's reliable, accurate, um, or easy to access can be very difficult. And that is really the, 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 the foundation on which we have to build not just fact-checking, but media and journalism. If journalists can't access information to check if politicians are telling the truth or not, um, it's a 
immediate impediment to their work. Um, it takes up resources, you need to do information, uh, access to information requests, you're fighting, you know, and, and those are resources which have to be devoted to that very good cause to get information that you need to do your job. But it then means that something else has to get and whether it's the coverage, um, your, your reach, um, the quality, um, there, there are a lot of issues that, that make it difficult to sometimes work in um, the space. Tandy, you back. Third time lucky. Thank you for moving to your car. Hopefully we won't have issues now. Um, we, we got interrupted when you were just introducing yourself and the organization. So if you could uh, continue with that, and then I'll have a few questions for you, just when we have an idea. Okay. All right. Perfect. Um, and thank you so much. I hope I get a couple of minutes in. Um, <laughs> with the, the, I suppose these are the things that we need to deal with in, in these very uh, uncertain times. But um, yes, as I was saying, um, Media Monitoring Africa, a nonprofit organization, we do a range of thematic work around human rights-based approaches to um, news media analysis, uh, quality media, media ethics, um, digital rights, internet governance, and it, it's all about um, what's in the best interest of the public and, 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 and ensuring that we have an active citizenry for, for a functioning democracy. That, that's sort of the... Um, in a nice nutshell, everything um, everything ha is a component of that. So it, it, it was a very organic um, move into working in the dis-misinformation space. Um, and it's especially around the role of information um, and access to, to meaningful information and, and the, the challenge um, of dis-misinformation. Um, and then with that, all the, the false information circulating our, our social media platforms and our digital platforms um, get, is, is impact, will impact media credibility and, and ultimately your, your participation in a democracy. And, and that's sort of the, the approach that we use and why MMA as an organization um, grapples with, with addressing these challenges. I mean, never before has misinformation, have the stakes been so high when it comes to misinformation. Um, you know, it can really be the, the difference between life and death. I just want to know with your organization, Tandy, how has the pandemic affected how you do what you do? Or the, is the pressure even more now than ever before to make sure that people are getting the right information? Mm. Well, I think I think what it has done is completely amplified what was already existing. Um, I think that you know, with with people during the pandemic, with people needing that very accurate, objective, factual information, you you turn to your your platforms, you turn to your your news sources um, for that. And I think the 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 the, the people or the the organisations that are taking or that that would have historically um, been involved in distributing and disseminating disinformation have have taken those opportunities and and you know gone gone a little bit extreme with this we we have seen a massive rise in disinformation um, so I just think I think the the, the crisis that we're in has um, again just amplified what what was already existing but um, it, it has it has meant that we've had to make a concerted effort to to try and try and address that. Um, so I'd like to maybe um, come to Kate and just uh, if there are any standout stories or issues that needed um, some verification that you could just highlight for us that Africa Check, uh, it caught the attention of Africa Check, you went through it and you just needed to clarify some issues. Could you just uh, give us some examples? Yeah, so I, I think I'll start with a, a BC example before COVID because there is lots of work <laughs> that everyone has been doing for years and years that is important that is not related to COVID, even though it's one of the most pressing challenges that we have at the moment. Um, as uh, I think South Africans watching this um, this broadcast will know that we we have many seasons in our country. We have 
strike season. So we, we know that every year we'll see strikes, um, but we, we have other seasons and we, we tend to have seasons of xenophobic violence. And whether it's every year or every 18 months, we, we often see um, hotspots and outbreaks of xenophobic violence um, against foreign nationals living in the country. And a lot of the work that we, we do, we, we try to really focus in on, on hot topic issues, issues which drive public debate, but also have an impact on the public. And this is really one space that we tend to prioritize because we know that our, our history, our country has a history of very, very violent um, bouts of xenophobic violence that quite often result in not only the loss of income and livelihoods for foreign nationals and sometimes South Africans, but quite often the loss of life. So a lot of the work that we've done over the years is to try and fact check statements about um, immigration and migrants in the country, because that is one place where there, there is data that can be accessed and can be used to fact check statements, but also introduce accurate information into discussions. So we fact checked statements. Um, we fact checked the, the quite widely shared um, um, statement that up to 80% or 80% of people living in Hillbrow are foreign nationals. Um, we fact checked um, statements about the number of Nigerians who are living in South Africa. Um, and we've also fact checked images and videos. Just last year, we had a report that was viral in its own sense, which when we saw xenophobic attacks last year, um, we saw lots, as we normally do, lots and lots of pictures and images being shared, claiming to show what they claimed were the current bouts of xenophobic violence. And in some cases, those were that was true. But in many, many cases, pictures and videos used out of context were being shared to describe the current situation. Um, and the risk there is that we know images and videos are easily shared on social media. Tensions are already high. Um, there can be violent reactions to certain information that is shared. And in this fact check, we we not just told we didn't just tell people that what they were seeing was false. We actually showed them why, and we took them through the steps of how they can do it for themselves. And there's a huge response to that. People, you know, felt vindicated because they had been saying it wasn't true. And people felt that they had acquired skills that they could do it for themselves. But it really showed how the very basic skills that we employ every day, that in most cases, when it comes to a picture or video, don't take much time, can really play a huge role in mediating that intense viral um, momentum that we often see on social media when it comes to issues around xenophobia and around migrants in the country. I think also, I mean, one of the things that bothered me about that particular issue is that once it has spread, sometimes I feel like it's too late. The horse has bolted uh, and decisions and, and perceptions around South Africa and South Africans have been made and have been filled. I mean, Nelly, uh, somebody who's in Nigeria, who's kind of on the receiving end of what's supposed to be happening in South Africa, especially with xenophobic uh, attacks happening here. What, how did you receive that news? Did you, was that part of your news cycle at all? Do you remember if you cast your mind back? Yeah, I remember. I remember. And it was part of the news cycle, but it didn't exactly happen to just one South African. And it, it wasn't also um, the images most people saw. There was quite a lot of vandalism, you know, and um, but also in the communicating of the story and on social media, it became it became as all as it, as it always is over amplified and, and something else. But that's also a very unique. I'm glad you asked that because that's a unique position of reminding me that all we had to do was play catch up. We couldn't anticipate the story. We, we couldn't anticipate the reaction here in Nigeria. And before people even started to understand that half of the images and videos they saw from South Africa were just fake, you know, images. These were stories that have been, you know, amplified as well on social to create a reaction from Nigerians. And in that way, I want to say to Katie also, and even to Dubawa, the fellowship I'm with is perhaps maybe it's, you know, perhaps it's time for us as journalists to, um, it's been suggested more than once, but to be able to find the sources 
of these news before it actually comes. So that fact-checking isn't only running after the facts, but also anticipating who these, um, who these actors are in disinformation, misinformation. Maybe, perhaps, if we can investigate who the actors are, nip them in the bud, it makes it easier to truly just analyze the facts. Because it, it, was, it, it was a simple case of Nigerians misunderstanding what's happening and South Africans misunderstanding what's happening here. And it's, it, the catching up constantly for, for you know, news is really something that doesn't exactly favor us in the fight against um, you know, fake news and fake stories and the amplification of, of most of these um, information that we see. But Nelly, when somebody is getting something on their social media or when they see something on TV and radio, how can they themselves verify the information? So is there a tip or is there something you can you can tell people who are watching the ordinary person um, who's consuming news? How can they themselves, um, when they don't have Nelly and Kate on speed dial, uh, verify the news that they are, are reading? We have we have done this quite well and we've tried to do this. The, I, I think the bit of a, the limitation here is we are communicating to, a, to different generations who believe fake stories. You know, there's a generation of our parents and the parents, you know, their parents who get these messages on WhatsApp and the technicalities of fact checking might be lost on them. Then there's the millennials and then the Gen Zs, you know, and the, you know, the Gen Xs and the different Gens who can easily do a quick fact check for themselves because they're familiar with how social media works. They're familiar with how a bit of tech works. So what we do, at least in Nigeria, what I know we've done is we give certain basic steps. You know, if you get an information, pause before you send it. You know, if you get an information you're not sure of, check, verify the news you know. You know, look for um, news outlets that you trust. But nothing, you can't do anything beyond that because if the news outlet confirms that fake news because they haven't as yet verified, now that's a totally different story. But we ask them to pause, to confirm from their news outlets, be sure that this is from premium times before you spread it, you know? Be sure who sent it to you before you spread it. And then for younger people, we say sometimes do a Google reverse image search. Just quickly put it on Google and reverse the image. Maybe it will tell you differently. Then you can be a fact checker yourself. So these are a few tips we give, you know, that at least helps anyone who wants to try to verify the information before they, they spread it. Is there anything you can add to that, Keita? How can people check for themselves, whether when they're watching something or hearing something, whether it's real or not? Yeah. So I think that's where fact checkers role isn't just to be reactive. Um, we can't constantly be tracing fake pictures out of context videos and misleading statements from politicians. We have to empower people to do it themselves. There will never be enough fact checkers, but maybe we can have an, enough, you know, educated and equipped people. Um, and one way that Africa Check is trying to do that is through a, a, a media literacy campaign that we're disseminating through WhatsApp. So we're trying to send, push, get basic skills, resources, tips into people's hands on WhatsApp um, over a period of a few weeks and months to just try and drive home the basic skills that will make them better equipped to deal, interrogate and decide whether to share information. Um, Tandi, I mean, you, you're joining us at a very crucial part as well. How can people check for themselves that the news that they're reading, the news that they're seeing is real? So how can I, in my own individual space, become a, a fact checker? What should I be doing? Hi, thanks. I thought I'd, I'd try and just join the, the last little bit of the conversation. I really, yeah, I really wanted to be, be a part of it um, because it's so, so critical. For, for these times. But um, just to answer your question, you know, it's not, I suppose it's, it's not just as simple as saying, you know, I'm going to, to be a fact checker. You have to really try and, and understand what you're looking at and, and be critical about every kind of piece of information that, you, that you're reading or that you're listening to or that you, that you receive. Um, you know, if something doesn't seem quite right, check other sources um, that that's the, the the biggest thing if if you get a piece of information on any kind of platform 
um, you know, first first go and check if it's being reported on on various credible media sites. Um, and, and once you're on those media sites, there are a number of different ways that you can verify that information. Um, and that's to, to know the author, to check the, the quality of the writing um, of the article, and to, to just, yeah, I think the bottom line is to just be absolutely critical of, of everything that you read. Rather, you know, rather don't trust first and trust later than, than the other way around. And Nelly, I'd like to go through all of you one by one. What are some practical solutions? Because, yes, we're talking about the consumer who must do the work, but what are some practical solutions that need to happen in general? Because we're moving forward in time. Um, you know, misinformation is going to stay. What are some practical solutions that we need to start considering to make sure that there is less spread of misinformation? Well, I think the solutions we need to consider are more, they're more uh, cognitive than they are actual skills, especially for us as journalists. When, a, when, when we're being taught fact-checking journalists, we're told about the biases of our consumer, of our viewers or listeners, you know, the readers. But there's also a lot with us as journalists that we go with. All of us have some form of, you know, confirmation bias or cognitive dissonance. We have to be able to, as Sandy said, critique that in ourselves. We have to be a little more reluctant with being the first to know the news and share the news, not just as journalists, but as consumers as well. So when I see a news story, it's okay to let it rest and check it again tomorrow until I'm sure, you know, allow, we, we all have to work the critical thinking, you know, is what I'm trying to say. And all of these biases that we face, we have to accept them. Then in some way, I think fact-checking, and that's the last I'm going to say probably is, as we had to learn computer skills to be in this age. We had to, you know, update what we know, soft skills. We need to learn certain soft skills that can protect us from the menace of fake news. You know, learn them, be part of ourselves as we consume it. And that way, both journalists and consumers of news will be able to, you know, just second guess the information that we get and then be able to trust those who give us the truth, no, whether we agree with the truth or not. Tandy is nodding ahead in agreement. What do you want to add there? What are you agreeing with there when it comes to finding practical solutions um, when we're trying to curb the spread of misinformation? Yeah, I think um, exactly as, as Nelly pointed out, you know, it's a, it's a new skill that we all have to learn, um, whether you on the side of producing the news um, or on the side of consuming the news. Um, so it, it really is something that, that takes a holistic approach to, to combating this. And, you know, for, for us, from our perspective, it's not only up to one um, party or, you know, one industry, whether it's platforms or government or citizens or media, it's, it's not, you're not going to get one solving um, everything. So as much as it's the responsibility of media to ensure that they are producing and disseminating good quality, accurate information, it's also up to the consumer to understand that um, with, with any kind of, um, uh, yeah, with, with any kind of reading or, or internalizing that information you need to be you need to be critical and and that's what um the work that we're doing around disinformation now and the real forum on platform that enables the, the enables use the users and the public to do exactly that is there anything that um news media houses or newsrooms should take into context or to consideration kate when it comes to just um curbing the spread of misinformation is there anything you'd like to share with them that they need to consider yeah i think my call would really be and i i know it's not an easy ask but would be to avoid unwittingly or wittingly playing the role of, of loud hailer to people who are already in positions of power. Um, we have politicians, we have experts, we have people who know that they can make statements that will be in most cases reported on verbatim in the media. And there is a role for journalists, if it's not possible to, to fact check, which we would hopefully see happen, to, to at least convey the certainty or, or to raise questions that 
gives a clue as to the certainty of the information that is being shared. Um, because the, the role of the media is so important, especially at a time like this, and they can really help elevate and improve not just the accuracy, but the quality of the information that really drives all decisions and is so integral to lives um, across the continent. Thank you so much to my incredible panel. Thank you so much, Nelly Kalu, all the way from Nigeria, representing Newswire NPR, also fellow with the Dubawa PTCIJ Fact-Checking Fellowship. Thank you so much, Tandy Smith. In and out. That connection is going to be the death of you. Uh, head of programs at Media Monitoring Africa. Also to Kate Wilkinson, Deputy Chief Editor at Africa Check. Thank you so much, ladies. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much to Frank, Marley, uh, uh, and Marley for your questions. Um, and thank you once again to all of our sponsors who made this session possible. Radio Days Africa. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for joining this Radio Days Africa session. Click to watch or download the podcast. That was a Radio Days Africa podcast brought to you by the Vitz Radio Academy.